morning once again. In the Anglican tradition, we observe Palm Sunday to commemorate our Lord Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. An alternative collect for Palm Sunday begins like this. True and humble king, hailed by the crowd as Messiah. The tradition is a reminder that Jesus is our king. On this day, we praise him for being our savior. We celebrate him using palm leaves as a sign of his victory. The mood is triumphal, celebratory, and joyous. But don't you find Palm Sunday a little bit awkward? I do have mixed feelings about it. I mean, what am I supposed to feel when I know that in a few days' time, we're going to remember his betrayal on Monday, Thursday, and observe his death on Good Friday? Is it appropriate to be happy right now? Or how loud should I celebrate Palm Sunday without making Easter Sunday feel like an anticlimax? Do you feel the same way? Do you find Palm Sunday a bit awkward? Yes? No? Just me? Pastor is not here, can say? Should we do away with Palm Sunday altogether? Amen. All right. Our gospel passage today records the historical event from which we derive our Palm Sunday celebrations. This event is commonly known as the triumphal entry, and it is also awkward in a couple of ways. It is awkward, first of all, because Jesus' behavior here is inconsistent with what he has been doing throughout his ministry. If we just look at the Gospel of Luke, we will find earlier in at least three instances where Jesus would not allow either the people he cured or the demons he exercised to make his identity known. Especially we find in Luke chapter 9, when Peter confessed Jesus the Messiah, Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. And in my Friday night reading group for beginners, we also notice from the Gospel of Mark that Jesus keeps telling his people to keep quiet about him. So there's always this shroud of secrecy, this personal data protection act going on. Hence, it is curiously contradictory that Jesus should participate in such a public and demonstrative procession which we see in our passage today. Let us take a closer look at the procession. In verses 35 and 36, Luke describes Jesus riding in on a colt, and as he rode along, the people spread their cloaks on the road. Now, it was not uncommon for Jewish teachers to ride on animals while disciples follow on foot. But paving the way was a welcome given only to royalty. This red carpet treatment is similar to when Jehu was anointed king over Israel. Let us see in Second Kings. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Hence, you understand that the people were acknowledging Jesus as king when they did the same display of reverence. And what they demonstrated in their actions, they confirmed with their mouths. In verses 37 and 38, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. How did Jesus respond to all this? 
He accepted everything in silent agreement. But when the Pharisees objected, Jesus says in verse 40, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is an indirect way of saying, telling the people to shut up does not change the fact that I am king. The triumphal entry is awkward because of Jesus' apparent 180 degrees change in attitude from confidential secrecy to pompous spectacle. But the triumphal entry is awkward twice over because after this spectacle, Jesus did not become king. He did not go up to the palace to remove then King Herod. He did not assemble an army to rise up against Caesar. He did not even establish a base of operations. Instead, as Luke summarizes for us, every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Jesus remained a harmless, homeless person throughout his time in Jerusalem. And before we know it, he was dead. The triumphal entry and Palm Sunday are awkward. What is the objective of this procession which amounted to nothing? What are we celebrating on Palm Sunday? What do the events of Palm Sunday, how do they fit into the events of Monday Thursday, Good Friday and Easter Sunday? We cannot answer all these questions until we understand why Jesus chose to enter Jerusalem in this way. It was his choice to arrive in this manner because Jesus was the one who told the disciples to retrieve the colt for him. The fall of a donkey is the animal which Israel's Messiah was prophesied to arrive upon when he came to Jerusalem. By choosing to arrive in this way, Jesus fulfilled Zechariah's prophecy and declared his identity as the Messiah. So could it be that Jesus did come to Jerusalem to establish the kingdom of God, just that he failed? Perhaps he had kept his royal identity a secret because he was simply waiting for the opportune time. And when the time was right, he came into Jerusalem with his followers. But for some reason, when he arrived, he did not take the throne immediately. Maybe he wanted to gather more supporters, which explains why he went about teaching as usual. Unfortunately, the pro-Herod and pro-Roman Jews got to him first. That is to say, he was killed before he could launch his revolution. This proposal is reasonable and explains all the facts. So maybe Palm Sunday is a commemoration of the day Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God, never mind that he was unsuccessful in the end. People do remember significant failures, you know. For example, this year is the 80th anniversary of the fall of Singapore, and there is a commemorative exhibit at the National Museum. Perhaps Palm Sunday is something like this. When I said this yesterday, the crowd had frowns. You know, they were like very disturbed. Of course, this is not true. This is not true, huh? Jesus has already made it clear that he had no intention of bringing about the kingdom of God there and then. He said this to the crowds right before the triumphal entry. Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. 
For this reason, he said this parable. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Jesus is the nobleman who must go away to receive the kingdom and then come back for his people. This, coming and, this going and coming from a far country does not refer to his descent into hell and his resurrection from the dead. Rather, it refers to his ascension into heaven and then his second coming into our world. From this parable and other parts of the Bible, we know that the kingdom of God is not an earthly realm which we can see and enter on this side of eternity. Therefore, nothing was going to appear when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. The eschatological kingdom of God is still a long way off from becoming visible. More than 2,020 years, 4 months, 10 days, 11 hours, what time is it? You get the point. If establishing the kingdom of God was not the reason, then what explains Jesus' triumphal entry and subsequent death? May I suggest to you that Jesus made a deliberate, dramatic entrance so that he may attract the attention of the enemy. The triumphal entry of Jesus is really Jesus' temptation of Satan. Now, I must say that this suggestion is not mine. I cannot remember who it is, but a preacher once mentioned in passing that the events of Palm Sunday are actually a reversal of Satan's temptation of Jesus, at least in the Gospel of Luke. I'm indebted to this uh, preacher whom I forgot for this idea, which I will now develop. For those of you who like to write notes during sermon, if you recall who this person is, please let me know. Okay. So according to Luke, the devil tempted Jesus in three ways. Providence, worship, and protection. Concerning providence, the devil tempted Jesus to provide bread for himself. Turn these stones into bread, if you are the son of God. Concerning worship, Jesus was tempted to worship the devil through promises of power and authority. I will give you the dominion over these kings and sit, uh, kingdoms and cities if you will worship me, says the devil. And concerning protection, the devil tempted Jesus to throw himself down from the temple to see if God will send his angels to protect him. Our Lord resisted all forms of temptation using the word of God. Cross-referencing with our passage now, we see Jesus demonstrating his power and authority in these three areas. In verses 29 to 34, Jesus worked divine providence. He told his disciples, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a coat tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You will say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. So we see Jesus provided transportation for himself. And as they were untying the coat, its owners said to them, why are you untying the coat? And they said, the Lord has need of it. So Jesus even provided an answer before the question was asked. That's providence. Then we've already seen how Jesus was worshipped by the people in verses 35 to 38. We won't go through the text again because we have already seen worship in place. And finally, in verses 39 to 40, Jesus protected his disciples. When the Pharisees wanted Jesus to rebuke them, Jesus defended and vindicated them. 
The events on Palm Sunday matched the temptation of Jesus on every point. But what a world of difference now. Back then, Jesus appeared to be unable to provide for himself. Now, he powerfully provides by his word. Then, he was seduced to worship the ruler of the world. Now, he is the one who is being worshipped by the crowds. Then, he was the one who needed protection. Now, he reveals that he is the true protector of his people. Imagine how the devil must have felt when he saw Jesus perform these things. The enemy, who has been watching and waiting for an opportune time, must see this as provocation, even mockery. How enraging it must be, how insulting it must feel. If there were a glass thermometer for resentment, Satan's hatred for the Son of God has shot through the glass. And so Jesus has captured Satan's attention. Satan, seeing as Jesus appears to be puffed up with pride, believes that this is the opportune time he has been waiting for. From now on, the enemy will concentrate his time and energy on getting Jesus off his high horse. The devil will pour out all his resources. He will activate his entire network of minions to ensure the death of the Son of God. So you see, Jesus' triumphal entry was really Jesus' temptation of Satan. And because Jesus did end up dead, we must say it was a truly triumphal temptation. But that's not the whole story. For if Jesus courted death without a purpose, it would be foolish suicide. But as it is, we know that Jesus came to the world to seek and save the lost. So how does this triumphal entry relate to his life's purpose? I'm helped at this point by Scottish theologian Peter Taylor Forsyth. Here's a quote from a Forsyth scholar. In dealing with sin on the cross, Forsyth postulates, God knew what he had to do to ensure its destruction. He had to bring sin to a moral head and incite it to do its very worst so that he could deal with it as a unity and at a center. And this God does by revealing his absolute holiness in the person of Jesus Christ. Following this line of thinking, Jesus' triumphal entry was part of his plan to draw out sin from human beings, to extract our worst evil thoughts, to concentrate our most wicked deeds onto his flesh. Jesus is the center. Thus, he rides tall on a horse to make himself visible to everyone. Thus, he allows his disciples to create a spectacle to make himself heard. But all this time, he remains silent, humble, even sorrowful because he knew what he was doing. And when all eyes and heads were turned towards him, he saw bubbling in the hearts of his disciples pride and vain ambition. He saw his opponents boiling with anger and jealousy. He sees the bystanders full of ridicule and unbelief. And he heard their thoughts. 
Some had unscriptural beliefs about him making the Jewish race great again. Some had unholy expectations of, setting them, of him setting them as officials in his realm, complete with riches and honor. Others were plotting ungodly schemes and conspiracies to get rid of him because they would not be ruled by a lowly carpenter's son. These sinful thoughts and feelings will eventually culminate in disappointment, ruthless betrayal, desertion, false witness, humiliation, abuse, and all manner of cruelty known to humankind. And when sinful human beings cross paths with a bloodthirsty Satan, they collaborate to commit the ultimate sin, the murder of God. Would things have been different if Jesus were born in another time and another place? Surely, if we were the ones who had Jesus among us, we would not commit such atrocities towards him. But no, my friends, have no such confidence in yourselves or in your generation. Harbor no optimism about humankind. We are not good. Jesus would have suffered at the hands of sinful humans regardless of the year and location. Whenever and wherever, we are all faithless Judas who would betray our teacher. We are all cowardly Peter who would deny our master. We are all corrupt Pilate who would fail to protect an innocent man. And we will be numbered among the crowds who cry, crucify him. Humankind would achieve our greatest rebellion against God. The devil will succeed at doing the worst evil. The death of Jesus Christ is inevitable because Satan exists and humankind is fallen. The good news is, our rebellion is precisely what Jesus was counting on. God, in his wisdom, knows what he had to do to ensure the defeat of Satan, sin, and death. Jesus Christ needed the worst sins to be aimed at him, the worst pain to be united in his body, and the whole range of human suffering to be inflicted on his being, so that he who knew no sin may be made sin for us. Because only then can Christ carry the sins of the world to the cross, and in the greatest demonstration of justice and love, die in the flesh with sin perishing with him in his body. And only when Christ alone stands again, when they have all fallen, can he then claim victory over Satan, sin, and death. But that's another sermon for another day. In the Anglican tradition, we observe Palm Sunday to commemorate our Lord Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. On this day, the Messiah enters into his own city to complete his work as our Savior, to suffer, to die, and to rise again. This is the day Christ initiates the end game, the final stage of his work, by tempting Satan and luring sin and death onto himself. Of course, 
It is in the nature of sin and Satan to oppose the Holy One of God. They really don't need any encouragement. But in order that God may be the author of salvation, in order that the testimony of the Holy Spirit is true, and in order that Christ may die on the appointed day and hour that God has foreordained, we must say that Jesus took the initiative. He chose to come into Jerusalem, mounted on a donkey, to the rejoicing shouts of the people, so as to complete his work. It is all part of the plan. So because the triumphal entry is the beginning of the end of evil, we commemorate it on Palm Sunday. We mark it as the start of Holy Week, which concludes with resurrection on Easter Sunday. So to be very clear, we celebrate Palm Sunday for three reasons. On Palm Sunday, we celebrate the wisdom of God who devised a great plan of salvation, which guaranteed the destruction of Satan, sin, and death. On Palm Sunday, we celebrate our King who went out to fight for us with every certainty of victory. And on Palm Sunday, we celebrate our Savior who did not despise us but has come away, but has come to take away our sins. There is no doubt that he who was made sin for us truly experienced our struggles, pains, and sufferings because he centered everything onto himself. And because he carried everything to the cross, we are forgiven sinners waiting to be glorified as saints in the kingdom. Knowing the reasons we celebrate Palm Sunday do not take away the awkwardness, and maybe they shouldn't. After all, we are a people waiting for our king to return to us from a far country. Our king already has the kingdom in hand, just that he is not yet with us. We live in the awkwardness of this already but not yet period of time, although most of the time we live as if everything is you know, just here. So in a way, Palm Sunday embodies that already but not yet reality, because as I've said in the beginning, it's an early celebration before the actual celebration on Easter Sunday. It is good then that we have this annual kind of awkward celebration so that we may be reminded of Jesus Christ, our King, who is coming back for us, his kingdom people. On that awkward note, happy Palm Sunday, everyone. <laughs>